and welcome to uh, another rousing round of the Dice Are Screaming. Oh, Coming at you oh. on a Friday. It's lots of screaming. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, it's a Friday, so hopefully you got some gaming lined up in your near future. And oh, yes. Oh. Now, we, we hope that all listeners are uh, at least bound for gaming sometime soon. Yep. And if not, you can stick around with us because we're going to be covering some topics tonight. Uh, took a little hiatus from last week. Yeah, it was a nice, nice little break. Mm-hmm. You know, had a few things to do. Handed it off to the uh, the Dungeon Brothers and let them just swing it. It's, you know, hard to get them out of the hollow, but when they visit, it's always nice. Yeah, that's right. So we understand that some of you uh, listened in and may have had some... Who the heck are these guys? But uh, Clem and Clyde show up now and then, and uh, they give their two cents on whatever it is, or two copper pieces that's on their mind. Well, they're not deep thinkers, but they do have something to say. They sure know the inside of a dungeon, okay? I mean, you know, we've got the the perspective of dungeon masters. They they have the perspective of uh, people who have been victimized by dungeon masters. (laughs) And the various monsters they're in. So we hope you enjoyed your visit with them. Um, we do have a call-in. Call in. Apparently, uh, one of their friends, Cooter, decided to show up and give his little two cents as well. Ah, <laughs> oh, Clement Glad got their own fans. That's right. Man, they're stealing our airtime, too. I hear you. Well, you know, they've earned it, so uh, take it away, Cooter. Hey, y'all, it's Cooter. I just want to let y'all know I was much obliged for that latest episode. I sure like hearing how y'all got after the environments. I was tickled pink listening to that. And uh, I much prefer y'all to them other idiots y'all usually got on there. They always sound like they've been smoking that wacky tobacco. Anywho, I'll see y'all down at the seed and feed. And it... Shep! Shep, get out of here. Jiminy Christmas, you're tracking in dirt, Shep. Whoa there, Cooter. Idiots. Uh, well, <laughs> he's not wrong. I mean, it is us. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not saying that Clem and Clyde are the sharpest tacks in the box, but uh, they, they do know their way around the inside of a dungeon, and uh, we know our way around the backside of a DM screen. So mm-hmm. it's more of our strong suit. But good to hear from you just the same. Yeah, um, well, of course, I don't know what's going on with Shep, but uh, as far as that wacky tobacco, hey, man. <laughs> oh, that was in my youth. The statute of limitations has long since passed. Yeah. Uh, guilty as charged. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we have some topics tonight, and tonight we're going to talk about uh, Planescape, a campaign setting that a lot of people uh, in 2nd edition feel very strongly about, and uh, it has a storied history within the D&D game, and uh, it was uh, quite the thing when it came out, and uh, really set the bar high for TSR, and really showed what uh, they could do when they set their minds to it. Yeah, there was a lot more higher-minded writing. Now, I I am going to pause for one moment, and as a caveat, it's important to mention that I have no practical experience with this game. Uh, Unlike most of the other releases and uh, publications that we've discussed. This one, 
I have no practical experience at all. I've never owned a copy. Uh, I had never actually read a copy. I knew of it. But I had also never played. I had neither been player nor DM for this. So uh, if I glitch or uh, make an inquiry about something that is that is off base, uh, that is purely owed to the fact that I have minimal, if any, experience or knowledge regarding this one. I'm fascinated by it, and I am familiar with the history surrounding the lead-up to it, but that's where my knowledge ends. Now, Randy, on the other hand, uh, has done a successful Planescape campaign back yeah, when it was originally released. So, we'll be leaning on you heavily, bro. Okay, fine with me, um, no problem. But um, just a couple of lead-ins before we get into the topic. Uh, we'll go to a break here shortly, but... Just want to add there that uh, Planescape is one of those campaigns that, like Mike, people either played or they ignored, um, not out of hatred or poo-pooing the idea, but there was a lot of things going on at that time. DSR was pushing out a lot of content, and they were really heavily invested in making campaign settings rather than adventures, per se. And not that there weren't adventures being published for Oh, there were. It just... You know, obviously the emphasis was on uh, spreading around the concept of gameplay in different settings. Uh, you're right. There was a big push to have a wider array of settings. Uh, and that, it was kind of a golden era. There were some of those settings I loved and I did get to participate in. This just happens to not be one. Right. Uh, you can expect no less from the poorly folded roadmap of gaming podcasts. Yeah, I can never master those things, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, did you, wait, how does it... Nope, just throw it out the window. Yep. Yeah. I'll get over. another. Yep. Get another at the gas station. But, all right, we have a little uh, business to attend to, a little promotion from our sponsors, which are Anchor Podcasts, so we're going to tear into that, and we'll be back after the break. Stick around, won't you? All right, and we're back. Thanks for indulging, and as well, uh, a little shout out to Anchor FM for giving us fine opportunity for us to get our word out to you fine folks out there listening on the interwebs, whatever you may use to listen to our podcast on. Consider Anchor for your needs because it's easy and pretty darn well. It's a lot of fun. I you know, I didn't fun. know going in that it would be as much fun as it was. And I was certainly, out of the gate, intimidated by technology. It's just a facet of who I am. And Anchor made a lot of stuff possible at a much easier uh, yeah. learning curve than I expected. So just going to throw it out there. Uh, if, if idiots like us can do it, <laughs> oh, just imagine what you can do. Right. So anyway, back to the topic. Uh, talking about Planescape. So Planescape being the... Topic that you are tonight. Yeah, we got to... Gee, Mr. Peabody, time to get into the Wayback Machine. Yeah, we got to go all the way back to 1994. <laughs> Why, it was the second edition, and lots of things have been happening. But uh, one thing the second edition didn't cover very well was the concept of the Outer Planes. And there was a reason for that. Primarily <laughs> because of demons and devils and all that hoopla that surrounded... The Satanic Panic of the 80s, which led to things like the PMRC, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, and, of course, the aforementioned just general hysteria surrounding the, 
the devil is coming for your children and teaching them how to play D&D will actually lead them to casting real-life spells. Yeah, a lot of, uh, just an inordinate amount of silliness was going on all at the same time. And that, I authoritatively recall. <clears throat> TSR made an educated choice to shy away from topics uh, in their second edition releases that were considered extremely controversial. They, you know, whether people like it or not, they chose the retreat option a little. Like, like, hey, let's just excise some of the most controversial parts. And Demons and Devils were one of the most controversial parts. It offended people of faith uh, quite a bit. And they routinely referenced that, like, well, you've got Demons and Devils in this thing. <coughs> well, they got rid of it. They said, hey, here's an easy answer. <coughs> Pardon. If they had any brains at all, uh, they would have spotted right off the gate that appeasement is not really going to work with those kind of conflicts. Okay, yeah. uh, You then wind up in a perpetual process of retreat. But they did what they felt was the right thing at the time. Yeah, and let's also mention that uh, they were being carried at Walden Books and B. Dalton bookstores that were yeah. malls and also by KB Toys and other outlets that, eh, you know, they didn't want that kind of controversy around you know, selling their products. So Bingo. You can say a lot of bad things about it, and certainly you're right, but at the time it made sense from a marketing perspective, especially with the release of second edition. But enough time had passed that they decided to finally get back on board and start to release uh, extra planar critters that could be considered demons and devils. Now they made a choice to rename them, but we're going to get into that in a little bit. But 94, David Zabacook was tasked with bringing a new campaign setting in. And uh, he ended up reading and watching a lot of film and books and started to develop kind of his own idea of how to approach the idea of using the planes themselves. We're just not talking about heaven and hell. We're also talking about the astral plane, the ethereal planes, the elemental planes of fire, air, earth, and water. <coughs> All places that were referenced in the original game. You know, so this was this was not a radical departure. Yeah. Uh, just a slight reinvention. No more, no less. Yeah, and it was using stuff that was classically been around for literally centuries of metaphysical thought. You know, the upper and the lower planes, imbalance with positive and negative and all that. And how would you take and make this into a gameable setting? And so the challenge was for him to come up with a logical course. And so Planescape was born out of that. And more to the point, uh, Planescape was centered around a city called Sigil. Technically, at the plane of concordant opposition with several philosophies like the Rule of Three and some other uh, esoterics. The center of all. Yes. As I, mind you, I only just read. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> During my minimal preparation phase. <laughs> well, hey, if we got uh, too far ahead of ourselves, we might actually start being competent. But more importantly, Planescape was presented not only uh, as a box set with all these weird ideas and philosophies, but 
it was given a very royal treatment by their art department. The uh, bronze patina, a kind of turquoise uh, patina wash that was over everything on the plane that was Planescape, featuring <coughs> the visage of a woman's face in bronze surmounted by a ring of blades. The Lady of Pain. Pain. Yes, the main character. A oh, apparently the keeper of Sigil, who was there tasked by some ancient pact of the gods to maintain the neutrality of Sigil, letting no gods enter in, save for her. And she spoke to no one, mm. and was beholden to no one. Now, Sigil was kind of a, almost uh, a David Copperfield-esque kind <coughs> of a slummish city with pollution and large towers and all these chains and, you know, basically almost an urban decay. And that fit well into the 90s setting of kind of this edgy, and I don't want to use this in a bad term, but yes, edgy applies in this perfectly. That it was right off the get-go someplace different than what you were normally expecting out of your D&D experience. No high turreted castles with ivory towers and minarets. More like tenements and factories, you know, mm -hmm. industrial yep. wasteland, huh? Yeah. Okay. And into this uh, were the factions. Now, the factions change from time to time, some disappearing, dying out, but they all clung to the nine alignments. <laughs> Very strongly aligned to not only just the outer planes, but the extreme edges of these alignments in an attempt to perhaps curry some favor or prove a philosophical goal. And some were easy to grasp. Some, like the sensates, were pretty much there to experience things through the five senses. Where others, like the governors, were there to enforce rule and order. Oh. Now, mind you, I have done some reading on this topic. And there were others, like, uh, for instance, the preppers. Yes. Uh, you know, who believed in an inevitable state of conflict uh, and dissolution uh, for which they needed to be ready. Uh, also, not coincidental that uh, the early 90s was also the time at which America saw that uh, starting to become a popular pastime. The, yeah. You know, preparing for doomsday. Yep, and a lot of these were... There were some that were just waiting for death. There were nihilistic and others who were anarchists and revolt revolutionaries trying to enforce their extreme views on other people. And so, you know, you come into this part in the 90s where everything was extreme, extreme! And so, <laughs> you know, it followed suit. But it's true, we were there. There were uh, a lot of opportunities inside Sigil itself just to adventure. You know, you could have an entire, more or less, campaign centered around factions uh, fighting and uh, working against each other, you know, and adventurers joining them or betraying them as they saw fit. So, it, at its point, it had a certain amount of political intrigue that you wouldn't have quite grasped first from <coughs> a planar uh, uh, setting that was basically meant to catapult you into the other planes of existence. I was immediately reminded of <coughs> Michael Moorcock's Elric series uh, with the city of Tanalorn that you kind of existed 
uh, peripheral to everywhere, but not precisely anywhere. Right. Uh, a place where the, the lost and forlorn and tired could find surcease and peace. Uh, now, Sigil does not sound as cheery as Tantalorn. No. Uh, it is actually more of a focal point where, you know, everybody meets on neutral ground, Highlander. All right. I like the core concept, though. Uh, it appeals to me right out of the gate because it solved that pesky question of how, in a campaign world spanning the entirety of all the multiverses, do we get people together? You know, how where is the where is the terra firma on which you stand? And this answered that problem nicely. It, it gave you a a meeting point, a gathering point. Here's where we jump off from. Like, okay, this week we're going to the elemental plane of fire. But you had somewhere to start and somewhere to come home to. Right, and you can still conduct pretty much uh, standard D&D adventures like going to a wizard's tower or exploring some ruins in the place called the Outlands, which bordered around Sigil. And there were border towns that hit every one of the major nexus points for the Outer Plains, which allowed you to transfer into them. And solving the pesky problem, like, hey, we're going to the plane of fire when we're only third level, so what are we going to do, get burned alive? <laughs> they gave you uh, um, planar stones that allowed you to attune yourself as if you were a native of that plane, allowing you to access and transfer your party and adventure, and or at least move around and interact there without getting fried from the very instant you come in. I like that. That explains a lot. Uh, you know, speaking of somebody who was not familiar with how the mechanics of the game worked, uh, there were some questions I had about, you know, how do they uh, solve the problem of uh, players being at an extreme disadvantage normally in a regular campaign? They would have been severely disadvantaged by being off their own home plane. In this, since the emphasis is on exploring other planes, there had to be some kind of mechanism by which they could be there. And I, I was wondering if the rules were had become structurally different or if they built in a means for the players to overcome that. And it looks like these planar stones did just that. Yeah, these folk uh, attunement stones were usually held by factions according to the various rules or found in the borderlands or whatever. The outlands where, where they were were kind of like those planes light, like for instance, the gateway to hell itself, which was renamed, and this is where we'll get into the context of some of the changes. Um, TSR decided to reincorporate demons, devils, and other evil extraplanar and uh, upper planar creatures, and <laughs> they decided to reintroduce them in full force. Now, some of them, like the Slod and uh, Plantars and uh, uh, some of the other uh, Gardenials and um, upper planar creatures weren't so hard to incorporate as per se. So nobody's going to get upset that there's a solar running around. But, you know, <laughs> you start throwing in horned devils and suddenly everybody loses their mind and we're back to, you know, burning books again and uh, reading Jack Chip pamphlets about how bad this game is. So they changed the names of demons to Tanari and to devils of Beatazu and pitted them against each other in what was called the Blood War where they were diametrically opposed in the axis of law versus chaos and were constantly in competition for supremacy of the lower planes. Complete domination was their goal. Yeah, there was no middle ground on this one. 
Uh, <laughs> lawful evil or chaotic evil. They were all pretty much in it for, like, one day I will be the boss of all this. Uh, I do remember tidbits of lore from uh, that era regarding the jockeying for position amongst Tanari and Badazu. And while I did not necessarily approve, I thought it was a wuss move to back out and rename everything and ditch the classical mythology references, because I love classical mythology. Uh, yeah, and so you had gateways into places like Olympus and Gladsheen, uh, the classical eras, uh, even the twin paradises and all, Bytopia and all that, were given uh, much more spruced up names. And so you had the realm of the gods now available to be entered into, technically speaking. But they designed the game so that first levelers and high levelers could both enjoy the use of Planescape. Planescape could just be inserted into your campaign, you know, as a one-off visit by your normal adventurers, perhaps high level enough to get to Sigil or to uh, seeking solace in the Outer Plains, they could find a way to Sigil and heal up or regroup and re-equip themselves for further adventures. And so that's where Planescape was mostly for uh, most Game Masters of that time. I don't want to say that it was a one-off sort of thing, but it could feature in, and so it had its premise. Um, other things that it brung in were some new races. Uh, first, the Typhling, which is now pretty much uh, a standard oh, yeah. race. Yeah, it was first become, introduced there. It's become a, a standard part of the game. And I had not known until we began the preparations for this episode that that was the origin point of the Typhling. And then the Asmiar a little bit later. If Typhlings existed, why not? Uh, they were inverse. Uh, since the uh, Typhling was not necessarily demonic or diabolic, but just from the lower planes or something different. Yeah, some little piece of their heritage had something to do with those lower planes. Didn't necessarily mean they were even a bad person. But that's just, you know, where they came from. So they were somewhat distrusted. And the other was the uh, eventually the Asmiar, which were touched by the higher planes. Because, you know, I mean, angels are susceptible to tequila, too. Yeah, I guess, you know. And it was really in an era where there was this, this weird font that was all over the place that uh, put its uh, kind of mark that you were reading a Planescape adventure. And there were many source books uh, made for the various planes of law, chaos, good, and evil, and all that. They covered them with pretty broad strokes, but gave detail and adventure ideas. So you had the Outlands, which were kind of like the Plains Light, then you had the actual planes themselves, and of course you had the ethereal and the astral planes and the uh, elemental planes. Oh yeah. But then you had my favorite, which is the quasi-elemental planes. Oh yes. See now, and those the, I know a little bit of. Yeah, like the plane of shadow is always my favorite to uh, adventure in for something mysterious and moody. And also, briefly mentioned here, uh, Ravenloft, which we will cover uh, sometime soon. The demiplane of yeah. Ravenloft. And there's many other uh, demiplanes floating out there. These were all, uh, you could basically, you were no longer bound to traditional Dungeons and Dragons themes of, you know, the forest, the desert, the Arctic, you know, the, the climates that we're all familiar with, which inhabit a normal material world. You could just go completely crazy. You could really let loose your imagination with demiplanes and quasi-planes and all that. And even adventuring on the planes of the gods themselves, 
I mean, you could go to Valhalla and, uh, you know, hang out with the uh, gods of Lias of the Asgard and the Vanir, and uh, find yourself embroiled in some kind of political game up there. <laughs> Valkyries are awesome! I'm here. I liked Olympus, although... <clears throat> yeah, do shield your higher charisma members of the party when Zeus is drinking. Yep. Seriously, no hole is safe. So into this cast, you had uh, you had the gods themselves featured, and so some people were a little initially turned off, like, "Well, you know, what do the gods do? Is any on quest?" And, uh, well, the gods are really not there per se. It's more or less their followers. Yeah, they're There's, there, but they're not intended to be the focal point of the adventure. Uh, you know, you're interacting with the other denizens that uh, occupy that space along servants. with you. You may, like in the uh, Norse adventure that they had on there, uh, you may meet one Nordic god like uh, Uller. Yeah, like a minor deity that is, you know, oftentimes sent to impart messages to the mortals. Or you may run afoul in the Olympian, Olympian plane of Dionysius. Oh, man. Dionysius, the... Uh... Yeah, Dionysius. Yeah, the much drunken revelry. Yep, get caught up in his revelry. It's hard. It's it's a fun time, but it's man, the hangover. That's a doozy. <laughs> yeah, I, literally, I, I think Eric Clapton's songs are all Dionysian odes. Mm -hmm. We gonna juggle and shout. <laughs> but yeah, it was a dynamic and ever-changing landscape that, you know, the DM had free reign with. It was no longer a really, uh, it was kind of like letting you out of the yard. You're off the leash. So whatever you could conjure up or you wanted to do, if you had a demi-plane that had some weird rules or you had an alternate world, here was your chance to really shine and uh, kind of give players a taste for it. Now, uh, going back to the factions... Everything was pretty well set around kits. Uh, that was a mechanic that was in second edition, which provided you with a handy background, plus some additional nifty little features. But the factions kind of took that to extreme. And uh, it's the 90s, guys. Well, and the <clears throat> there were two parts that I've recognized regarding factions. Mm -hmm. One was the ideological underpinning. Uh, any faction to which a character belonged had a strong ideological underpinning that guided their actions. Mm -hmm. Not so much a simple alignment as a collection of purposes, a belief system about the world, much more dogmatic than a traditional alignment. Which stands in, in the four that you're living on the plains. Like, literally, yeah. here is... You're embroiled in the politics of this universe. You know, you, you have a principal role as a, oh, what, a representative of a deity. Uh, or just an alignment that's attached to that plane, like uh, the followers of... They changed the name from a Nirvana to Macalus, which was more of a mechanic gear-based place, which uh, was inhabited by the Modrons. Ah. Which Primus was at the center, you know, because, you know, Les Claypool and the base, you know, deserved... I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you can only reach him I'll by, see myself out. You, you can only reach him by sailing the seas of cheese. Yeah, that's right. High five. But <clears throat> besides all the puns that we get to throw in there... Um, he has some lovely pork soda. Yes, he does. And 
more to the point that these philosophies were based in the alignments, but they had something different to them, and they were obviously idealized by those more extreme members of them. Yeah, I use that word again. The second part was beyond the ideology, there were allegiances that came with it that were more tangible and physical, including uh, were there not uh, much like Kit's uh, powers and other yeah, things? Yeah, that... the more you got, uh, you were either orthodox, you were a, um, reformed, which was kind of the more kind of like middle of the road, or you were a heretical part of that faction, trying to, within, change it to an, a different mode of thought. Oh. And therein the political uh, machinations were set. Oh, For instance, geez. Hell was trying to get its hooks into some of the lawful neutral factions to slowly and subtly change them to more evil. Wow. And vice versa, the powers of uh, light and good were trying to do the same. So you could have a lawful evil person in a lawful evil kit slash uh, faction working subtly to undermine that faction because their perception of what lawful evil means doesn't necessarily jibe with the faction's belief. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hey, you know, if you want some brain busters there, that sounds like a campaign for... Yeah, so it was really ambitious and perhaps a little bit too so. And TSR would kind of take a heavy hand with it and start to write a narrative. And while the Lady of Pain was always like, "What's what's her role in this? Why why does uh, she why is she here? What's her what's her purpose?" And because would, the art was awesome. Yeah, and their art department, uh, Tony Delaterzi, De was foremost in making a lot of the artwork prominent in that. Uh, the idea that what is the Lady of Pain all about? Why is she here? Is she some type of evil creature? You know, obviously with the blades and her ability to just stare at you and make you explode. Okay, that's a bit... Yeah, never speaks. Much. You know, beholden the nun. Even gods, like, move away from her. She has head explody powers. Yeah, usually you have all sorts of nasty blades would just suddenly manifest inside of you and then work their way out instantly. Oh, wow. Angry metal porcupine. Yep. Bloody Viserol and got the point across. Don't mess with her. But <laughs> they would write in a narrative that would slowly drive the factions into a full-fledged war and sigil, uh, threatening to destroy it once and for all, and it came to its conclusion in a book called Faction War, hmm. which pretty much was the end of the setting. Oh, wow. Lady of Pain shot with a massive cannon, uh, disappears for a while, returns, only to cast all the factions out, killing or driving insane all the remaining leaders in a uh, bit of fury, wow. revealing that she was an exiled demon lord, at which also demon lords reappeared, and also devils. Hmm, okay. Major devils, demon lords were finally appeared, and so then they left that cat out of the bag. And so, for a brief time, Planescape was kind of uh, written out. Wow. It wrote itself out, and, you know, basically you were just there to watch. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, color me unexcited. With all this potential, yeah, this is how I mean, you it, ended it. And I if mean, I sound a little bitter... No, no, I'm with you, man. I mean, it seems like there was still a lot of potential there, and if they, they hadn't really realized it in module sales, they just called it quits in a kind of flashy way, 
But honestly, there was a lot of meat, meat left on the bone there. There was no reason to, to walk it back completely. Yeah, the Faction War book, much uh, anticipated, really just kind of spelled the end of the setting. And for better or for worse, uh, TSR was having its own woes at the time. And they were trying to trim the fat, so... Oh, yes, the uh, over-publishing... Yeah, yeah, so they were trying to cut back, and so, you know, they felt that the Planescape had, you know, as went as far as it could, which... Hey, you know, I'm not sitting in the... Uh, I'm in the catbird seat here. I'm, I'm not sitting from where they were, so I yeah. can't really pass too much judgment. I just say it was kind of ham-fisted and wasn't really that fun for a setting. I don't mind them ending it, but... Or revealing anything, but it just seemed like, ah, wow, really? Uh, and that does not mean, you know, the disappointing ending does not mean that it's a useful tool, even now, the old published works. It's a great tool to learn about how to make interesting extraplanar campaigns. And we've discussed the topic of extraplanar campaigns in the past, uh, but this is one of those building blocks, one of those toolkits where you can crack one of these open and it's literally chock full of variable ideas that you can make use of in your campaign. So yeah, like the Outlands being the Plains Light was a good idea. Like we went to the uh, to Carcere, the uh, place that's uh, near Tartarus, Ooh. and uh, explored a Wizard's Tower at first level, found a hidden key that allowed a portal to be opened, and found out that our employer who had sent us there after clearing out the minions in the wizard's tower, which were some burblings and other uh, planar nasties. Ah. He and, set you up, didn't he? Well, no. It was just a, <laughs> oh, no. It was just things that were hanging out there, cleared it out, and found the uh, key. And later returned it to him, and then he ended up dead, and then assassins were after our characters. And so it was an exciting, and I thought, well-written uh, intro to how to really start personal adventures. You know, we had to go to the... Uh, Next uh, series of adventures led us to the Elemental Plains and then eventually to uh, Olympus. Wow. And so you kind of got like a grand tour of the planes. I mean, we almost hit every one of the planes. There were a few I don't think we had. I don't think we went to Pandemonium or uh, Limbo as it was okay. uh, renamed. And, you know, and so as with all the way through 3rd edition, they tried a little bit to hit with Sigil. I mean, Sigil's kind of, I guess, still out there. And I like to think that the... Lady of Pain, wherever she is, is still turning people inside out with her blades. <coughs> Ow. And walking around, you know, just not saying anything to anybody. I like to think she's all right and doing well. Uh, yeah, it's a lot like kidney stones. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, no, I, I gotta say, they did publish a good spread of material at the time that it was released. I, I don't know the interior contents that well. But I do recall the variety of products that they had released. Yeah, they had the initial box set. They had the Planes of Law, the Planes of Chaos, and box sets. And then I think they had an elemental source book and a couple others detailing just various planes, like the Planes of Opposition. Very good. And the Blood War, of course. Uh, the you know, And then the, uh, you know, fitting with the moral ambiguity of the times and the setting, uh, you know, the... Lawful, good, and neutral good, and chaotic good creatures are uh, denizens of the higher planes who are just simply uh, watching the evil ones tear themselves apart and manipulating events from afar. <laughs> Sending encouragement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wishing them good luck. Oh, good luck on your big fight against the devils. <laughs> uh, yep. No, I, I gotta say, all of it 
whether you're playing first, second, third, fourth, or fifth edition, uh, it does sound to me like a lot of that material is ready to yeah. be plucked from, then, uh, which is kind of just a universalist statement. There are so many great modules that have been released over the years, and it, it's just a hammered-home point of ours, that this stuff can be cherry-picked for new material in campaigns that you're running right now. Uh, if you don't have a similar uh, module to, to some of these older publications, uh, this is not hard to adapt. It's not, it's not an enormous strain to adapt it. Uh, you may have to re-kit some monsters and alter a few areas where characters are tested uh, uh, against their skills and or abilities, but it's well worth the reward. It, it gives a lot of options that you can put on the table for your own game. All right, and if Planescape is gone from its glory days, uh, and I lament that, it's only because I thought it had a lot of potential, and I think that it made a good case that any... The Dungeons and Dragons is a personal enough game to take just about any subject and work well with it. Now, maybe it's not so much modern stuff, but I do believe that there is something to say that you could do a viable steampunk Ooh. out of that. Uh, Planescape did lend itself to a little bit of steampunk at the time, and I do credit Planescape for giving us a view into the goggles and gears. And uh, here's a little here's a little tidbit just for me to you. Uh, for those of you who like fusion games where uh, different campaign settings run into each other, remember Sigil, because much like other literary accomplishments similar to that, like Tantalorn, uh, it's a great way to tie together two campaign worlds mm -hmm. uh, that are completely disparate, like your our cyberpunk characters got stuck in wherever. Uh, these possibilities become pretty accessible once you include a place like Sigil uh, and the Planescape atmosphere. Yeah, and that's where really my uh, lament lies, is that Sigil, like Tanglorn, exists at the boundaries of all campaign worlds. Yeah, somewhere there, hovering on the periphery, just out of sight. Uh, it brushes up against all things, kind of everywhere, kind of nowhere. Yep. Well... Well, with that, I think we covered Planescape, and thank you for listening to us. And again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach us at Twitter, me at uh, Death Hand Gaming, that's D-E-T-H-A-N-D Gaming. And myself at Magi Box. Or on the Dice Screaming. We had some uh, good folks join us this week, and so thank you all. And uh, as always, keep, the, uh, keep it coming. Oh, but, uh, yes. And just uh, keep the love flowing, give us call-ins and all that, but... May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.